We read in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision Uh, In a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his, fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a kid, my mother and both my grandmothers drilled into me the importance of manners. I was taught to treat everybody with kindness, always say please and thank you, and write thank you notes as quickly as possible. Like, very quickly. You need to do this right away. Uh, I tried my best to follow their instructions, but whenever I failed to measure up in some small or big way, um, all three gave me a similar apocalyptic warning. They said, if you do not use your manners, which shows you that you value the dignity of other people, society is going to collapse. Okay? <laughs> that, was, that was basically what they said. At the time, I thought they were exaggerating, but now that I have kids of my own... I've realized that maybe manners literally are the only thing that prevents my children from giving into their dark side and letting chaos reign. Teaching our children to ask nicely instead of issue commands like tiny dictators, reminding them to use words to share what they're feeling, encouraging them to play peacefully and to work together is a daily struggle, literally a daily struggle. Helping them understand that common courtesy is an up. I'm sorry, helping them understand common courtesy 
is an uphill battle, not just because they are young, but because the human heart revolves around our own self-interest. The founders of this nation uh, understood the necessity of these social rules probably better than we do today. When George Washington was 16 years old, he copied by hand 110 rules of civility and decent behavior and company and conversation. Uh, This was a set of social expectations composed by French Jesuits in 1595. Some of these rules are a little out of date, like don't spit in the same fire that's used to cook dinner. Well, (laughs) um, others like do not speak evil of the absent or be not apt to relate news if you know not the truth still apply today. Washington abided by these rules throughout his life because he knew they helped him focus on the needs of others and not just himself. They represented the small sacrifices that everyone should be willing to make for the common good and the sake of living together in peace. Many of our uh, founders also understood the danger of focusing solely on our own individual needs and desires. They understood that the human heart has a tendency to be selfish. Samuel Adams wrote in 1779 that a general dissolution of principles and manners will surely overthrow the liberties of America more quickly than the whole of the common enemy. When people are overcome by self-interest, Hostility replaces friendship. Assumption replaces the benefit of the doubt. Foolish arguments replace communication. Sadly, it seems that we already live in a world where basic respect and compassion for others have disappeared. It's not hard to see that. We see protests on the news where both sides devolve very quickly to just screaming in each other's faces. Outrage seems to have become the primary, primary avenue of expression. Social media, which is designed to help people communicate and connect more, provides not usually words of affirmation, but criticism, eliminating the, the empathy that's present when we talk to somebody face-to-face. Many websites, uh, if they post an article on any kind of issue, they uh, shut down the comments section because of how quickly they know the discussion is going to devolve into personal attacks. Even when we talk with friends and family, the passion surrounding certain issues blind us to the reality we are conversing with actual people who have value in God's eyes. Now, it might be easy to blame the antagonism of our culture on the news or extremists on either side of the political spectrum, maybe even the the, general spiritual drift that our country has been on for some time. But if we're honest, the real aggression, the real cause of the aggression we find in our fractured world rests in the human heart. Even if we try to get along with everybody, the sinful impulse to justify ourselves and ignore the needs of others remains. We have a tendency to apply the best motives to ourselves and the worst to other people. We, too, argue about mundane or essential aspects of life. We rationalize hard and unkind words. And we can be especially harsh with those that we consider our enemies. The lack of civility that pervades our world begins 
when we elevate ourselves above everything and everyone else, when we believe that we are right and everybody else is wrong, and we re- when we refuse to listen to anybody with a different point of view. Saul, the Pharisee traveling to Damascus to persecute the early church, would have fit in to our ungracious, outrage-fueled world extremely well. Before he met Jesus, before he met Jesus, Saul was a selfish and ungracious man consumed by, selfish, by self-righteousness. From the letters that he writes later, we know that Saul was angry at everything and everyone who did not share his precise understanding of the Jewish faith. He recounts in Acts 22, these are his words. He says, I am a Jew. I was born in Tarsus and brought up in Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel, who was the preeminent law scholar of the day, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of Jesus to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Saul's zeal ignited a deep passion in him to serve God, but it worked itself out as, re- as rebuking and, if possible, eliminating all the Christians, a group he considered a direct threat to God's people. The very existence of Jesus' followers to him was unacceptable. They were leading faithful Jews away from Yahweh. And the law clearly stated that heretics like that deserved death. They were doing something so terrible that they deserved to die, that they should not really be considered human. Setting himself up as the central antagonist of the early church, Saul held the coats of the people stoning Stephen and persecuted the church in Jerusalem so deeply it fled from Judea just to survive. Eventually, the religious council known as the Sanhedrin gave him authority to hunt disciples as far away as Damascus. He's like some federal agent or international spy, like a U.S. marshal just going beyond borders. He was officially licensed to bring any believer he found back to Jerusalem for trial and punishment. Even worse, and this is where he would fit in in our world, Saul used his intelligence and his desire to please God, uh, to, please God to justify his actions and his attitude toward anybody that disagreed with him. He was harsh. Like many in today's world, Saul operated in a perpetual state of outrage, being quick to condemn and eager to fight. He describes his state of mind uh, before he met Jesus in Titus 3, and he writes uh, that you, like me, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing your days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That was how Paul considered himself before he met Jesus. But then Jesus stepped into the middle of his outrage, and Saul was never the same. Traveling to Damascus, a light from heaven flashed around him and halted his mission to persecute Christians, ended his mission. 
In the Greek, the phrase fell to the ground is much more than a physical description. It implies that he was thrown into the dirt as a divine rebuke. He was thrown down from his place of honor. This word is often used in the New Testament to describe what people do when confronted with the news of salvation. The wise men fell down and worshipped Jesus when they finally found him. Jairus, the synagogue leader, fell to the ground when he begged Jesus to save his daughter. John falls to the ground when he receives the vision he records in Revelation. And if he had time to think, Saul would have also recognized this new humble position in the dirt It echoed moments in Israel's history, too. Even people like Abraham and Joshua, Ezekiel and Daniel, they fell on their faces in the dirt in the presence of God, overcome by such radical holiness. In the dust, perhaps maybe even likely expecting judgment, Saul hears someone ask, why are you persecuting me? When Saul asks, who are you? The answer undoes his entire world. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This response destroys Saul's entire understanding of his world, revealing he actually wasn't God's righteous warrior, but he was an enemy standing in the way of the plan that God had set in motion way back with Abraham to bless all people and restore the entire world. N.T. Wright says, says this about this moment for Saul. It was all too much. They led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. It was three days before he could do anything except simultaneously recoil from the horror of what had happened and gasp at its glory. We call this event a conversion, but it was more like a volcanic eruption, a thunderstorm, a tidal wave all coming together at once. And Saul's conversion, uh, four spiritual realities about God's grace become clear. First, the grace of God is unexpected. All of these realities, by the way, should give us hope. The grace of God is unexpected. Remember, Saul went to Damascus searching for Christians, but he never expected to meet Jesus He was seeking God's favor through his own work and actions. As a faithful Jew, God's presence rested in the temple and nowhere else. He was not expecting to meet God. He never would have dreamt that God would confront him in this kind of way or in that moment. Scholar Warren Wiersbe noticed some 30 years later, Paul wrote in Philippians 3 that Christ had apprehended him on the Damascus road. Saul was out to arrest others when the Lord arrested him. Second, the grace of God convicts. Saul believed that he was doing something good, but Jesus shows him the truth. On his way to meet, to hurt more people, Saul learns he's not just messed up a few non-essential doctrines, but that his entire life has made him an enemy of the God he'd actually been trying to serve. He didn't just mistakenly teach the wrong thing, said something wrong in Sunday school. He had practiced violence. He had killed in the name of God. And when Jesus appears, it is Saul that is slain by the truth, convicted of how far he had wandered from his God, how deeply he deserves the condemnation of a holy, good God. Third, 
The grace of God is an unmerited, free gift from our gracious Father. Saul, in this moment, deserved to be forgotten. He deserved to be condemned. Based on his own choices and actions, he deserved to be destroyed, to be cast aside, forgotten. An enemy of God that was removed so the early church could thrive. But instead, this villain, and he is the villain of the story up to this point in Acts. This villain receives mercy and grace. Spared, Jesus uh, directs Saul to go into the town and wait for instructions, and he is overcome by the fact that he is still alive and that there is a purpose for him. Poet uh, George Herbert puts into verse the response of every sinner when confronted with the grace of God. In a conversation with love, who is inviting him to sit down and eat at the feast that love has prepared, uh, Herbert writes this, I, the unkind, the ungrateful, oh, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made thy eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Finally, the grace of God is transformative. In the next few chapters, Saul changes his name to Paul to reflect the internal shift in his heart and mind that Jesus began. For him, meeting Jesus was a simple case of cause and effect. Jesus entered his life, and now he was someone new. J.C. Ryle describes this change like this. To be born again is, as it were, to enter upon a new existence, to have a new mind, a new heart, new views, new principles, new tastes, new affections, new likings, new dislikings, new fears, new joys, new sorrows, new love to things once hated, new hatred to things once loved, new thoughts of God and ourselves and the world and the life to come and salvation. Saul then applies the same intelligence and passion for the rest of his life, not to persecution, but persuasion, not vengeful outrage, but but proclaiming salvation to Jews and Gentiles alike. Saul, the great persecutor of the church, had been called to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. Saul uses this moment twice uh, in Acts later to justify his entire mission to the Gentiles. And yet, as much as this moment for Saul should give all of us hope that God comes and reaches to all of us, even the worst of us, the story here isn't quite over. When Saul goes to Damascus, he receives another vision about a man named Ananias, a believer that Jesus had just commanded to go to Saul and restore his sight. Ananias knew Saul's reputation. He knew what uh, he had done to the church. Ananias, if we think about how the Christian community, how big it was at that time, he likely knew people who had suffered because of Saul's actions. He might have known Stephen. He even knew that Saul had been coming to Damascus to find and hurt Christians like himself. In his eyes, Saul was an extremely dangerous man. 
His response then, which is full of worry, shouldn't surprise us. But after a short explanation from Jesus, Ananias leaves his fear behind and goes to minister to the great antagonist of the early church. Ananias puts into practice Christ's command to love others, even your enemies. Having experienced God's grace in his own life, Ananias goes to Saul and greets him with the name brother. Now this term of endearment applied to Saul a person who had done so much evil in the earth to the early church should really shock us. In their context, being a brother meant you were part of the same family, bound by new ties of kinship, worthy not of condemnation but love. Saul not only heard the voice of Ananias as he prayed, but he felt his hands, a confirmation of his acceptance into this new family, this new community that God was creating in Jesus. Notice that only when Ananias extends mercy does Saul's blindness end. That's not coincidental. God's grace opens eyes. God's grace changes hearts. Church, we are called to be like Ananias. We are called to be a gracious people in an ungracious world because only then can people see the power of God's love. Remember, the early church faced persecution we can hardly imagine. Harassment from friends and family, social discrimination, prison, physical violence, and death weren't just possibilities. They were expected results of following Jesus. Most of us would not fault early Christians had they fought back in anger or violence. Had they responded with with frustration or outrage or even rebellion, we would have understood because these believers faced a genuine reason to respond with hostility, but they didn't. They responded to their persecutors, not with anger, but peace, not aggression, but gentleness, not outrage, but kindness. Echoing the words of Jesus to love their enemies, early Christians blessed the people that cursed them, loved when they were reviled, did good even as others worked to do them harm. Their countercultural response served as a public declaration of a living faith, and it pointed back to who Jesus was and is in their life and ours. Their actions were the first line of their testimony, the paper upon which they might proclaim the name of Jesus and his salvation. Ananias models this with Saul, and we are called to do the same in our world. When we extend grace and forgiveness and patience, when we say words that bring peace and calm instead of adding to the anger, when we do all these things in a hostile world, people notice. And when they notice, we too can, can declare that Jesus has come to make all things new, that no one is out of reach of God's redemption, and everyone has a part to play in God's kingdom. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.